This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Mike Thebus, Jeanette Evans, and Bart Hood received the news they didn't want to hear in the Rome, Georgia courtroom in October 1979. Mike Thebus, guilty on racketeering charges, guilty of conspiracy to violate the civil rights of government witness Roger Dean Underhill by killing Underhill and Isaac Galanti. Thebus's corporation, Global Industries, guilty of racketeering. Jeanette Evans and Bart Hood, guilty in the Underhill-Galanti killings. Mike Thebus was going to spend the rest of his life in prison. The 1970s had been a decade full of drama for Michael George Thevis. Once worth over $100 million and sitting on top of the world, Thevis would now begin the 80s in a federal prison. Most everyone I spoke to for this podcast believed that if Mike Thevis had just kept quiet and run his adult entertainment business in the background, that things may have turned out very differently. Paul King. Well... The other part of people didn't like him, obviously, because he was pretty much trying to put him out of business. And I think, and this is just me thinking out loud, once he started getting into the rough side of the business, I think he enjoyed it. You would have thought he had so much money, I would have just quit. If Thieves had just stopped trying to be so macho, I think he would have probably still be in business. <laughs> uh, it, what he was doing was distasteful, but until he started, you know, killing off his competitors and stuff like that, uh, it was just a normal porno operation. FBI agent Richard Foster. Well, in my judgment, Mike Thevis was above average in native intelligence and perception, or what we agents would call street smarts. He was clearly ambitious. He had the vision to see an opportunity, however unsavory. And he had the initiative and the organizational ability to build a very large organization from a very modest beginning. I would say he was on the plus side. He was congenial. He was well-groomed and well-mannered. And, and he was certainly capable of making a very good first impression. He must also have had a certain amount of leadership. He was able to persuade people like Roger Underhill, Bart Hood, and uh, Arby and Jeanette Evans to corrupt themselves for him. I'm only being partially facetious when I say that if the man had just had a good consigliere, a good business manager, and even more importantly, a good public relations manager, he might have wound up uh, another Hugh Hefner. But that wouldn't be possible. I think that Thevis was, he was a murderous thug. He could be likable in many ways. He was not a, an uneducated, totally blue-collar serial killer, but he was a thug. He simply didn't hesitate to use murder, arson, any sort of violence, and he did that early on. That started early on as he was working up his business. It seems to me that he always had that in him. Paul Lieberman. So another thing that really intrigued me about Thevis and the chutzpah he had, but also his virtue. There is 
the craziness of our enforcement of obscenity laws, how the line always changed, and again, the irony that he or someone similar would be on trial for showing a certain type of pictures, and by the time the case came about, the hotel where the district attorney is staying and the defense attorney is staying are showing the exact same material, but two years ago it was not legal. After his time at the Atlanta Constitution, Lieberman also worked for the LA Times, writing an eight-part series on mobster Mickey Cohen. The story became the basis of a book and movie called Gangster Squad, released in 2012, featuring Ryan Gosling, Josh Brolin, Emma Stone, and Sean Penn as Mickey Cohen. I need you to wage war against Mickey Cohen. I'm looking to put a squad together. A small squad, five, maybe six guys. Going up against 40? Well, you gotta die something. Nobody will ever know what we've done. We're not solving a case here. Going to war. Lieberman also thought about how the story of Mike Thebus might translate into a movie. Some years later, a a Hollywood producer asked if I'd write a screenplay on it. And didn't work as a deal. But I started imagining my favorite scene. It was inspired by something Thebus did that I would give him a lot of credit for. He organized adult film and adult bookstore producers. And they had a big meeting, convention. And I thought that was just wonderful. Uh, If it wasn't for the killings and the burnings and stuff, just the business itself, they did provide, I guess, a a need that a certain audience wanted. But I loved the image. You You had the convention, and then you'd have these rubber sex toys. You'd have the chocolates and stuff shaped like body parts. I mean, that to me, when I was creating a, a film of it, that was going to be one of the great explosions of it all out in public. Like, you know, giant convention center all filled with varieties of rubber body parts and edible body parts. You know, and that part, I guess, for some people is their form of entertainment and someone makes money selling it as they do to this day. So that part of Thevis, that he, that he had the chutzpah to actually organize. Jerry Froelich, an Atlanta attorney who had worked as a prosecutor on Thebus's early obscenity cases, remembered the time when Thebus was such a big personality in Atlanta. Everything that I knew about him and learned about him and why they pressed the charges was he was a pretty violent guy and that he took over stores and areas by being very forceful and by intimidating people. If he had probably just run it as a business, he probably eventually would have been all right. I think the Supreme Court eventually would have knocked out the pornography laws. But he was in the South and he was, it was pornography. So starting out from the first day I walk in to the U.S. Attorney's Office, probably for the next 15 or 20 years, I'm bumping into Thevis people. In fact, I've got a case out in the federal penitentiary. I don't remember what year. It had to be in the 80s. My client was in the federal penitentiary. And at those times, you walked in. It was a very dangerous place because you walked into the, to the front door. They cleared you. And then either to go to the, to the visiting room, to the lawyer's room, to, to talk to your clients. You had to walk down a hallway, a long hallway. And there were cell pods on either side. I mean, this was a nasty prison. I mean, it it was a max prison. And prisoners are just walking up and down. And all of a sudden I hear, Jerry Froelich, what are you doing here? And I turn around and I hardly recognized him. It was Mike Thevis. And he was bald, but he had a, a, basically bald, and he had a ponytail. 
real long ponytail. And he looked like he weighed, he was, he was not a big guy. I mean, not a tall guy. And he must have weighed 300 pounds. He looked like a balloon. He was huge. I hardly recognized him. I looked at him. He said, it's Mike Thavis. Remember me? I said, yeah, Mike, I remember you. And from the first day I walked into the U.S. Attorney's office for the next 20 years, I was bumping into things that had to do with Mike Thavis. You know, Thavis, they went here. I believe that if Thavis had just not done the criminal activities he did, if he had just dealt pornography, I think he would have eventually been all right, would not have been prosecuted, or things would have been overturned. But there was always that background on him. I mean, he wanted everything. If he had just pretended to be, a, or been a straight businessman and just had these stores all over the country, just didn't flaunt as well. And he talked tough. He, he, I think he liked being a gangster and a tough guy. And that gets you in trouble all the time. They considered him like an organized crime guy. I mean, he was tough talking. He flashed cars and rings and clothing and houses. And he was in your face. If he had been a low, but that, you know, that was his personality. He wanted to show you he was the tough guy. He wanted to show you all the money he made. He wanted to, you know, he wanted to, you know, snub his nose at everybody. So what exactly happened once the trial was over? Pat McLean had her trial in Panama City, Florida, and was represented by Ed Garland. She was found not guilty in the trial, and, after living in Atlanta, eventually moved out west. Anna Jeanette Evans was sentenced to life in prison, but was released in 1992 and now lives in a small town in South Carolina. Like Pat McLean, she declined to comment for this podcast. Bart Hood was released from prison in 1990, and is deceased. I thought a number of times of trying to see him in prison to see what he would say. One of the things you always wonder about such characters is will they in the end fess up? And very rarely do. Do they really repent? Not likely. And it's hard. You can't expect someone to say, yeah, I really killed Roger Dean Underhill and he deserved it. And that's to betray your boss in this world is a fatal sin and he paid the appropriate price for that. He's not going to say that, but you you got to give him a shot. You never know. I think that didn't affect me until probably 1978. And the reason I know 78 is because that's when his trial was, and it was just nonstop O.J. Simpson-type coverage in the Atlanta papers. And it was strictly Atlanta. It didn't go to even Chattanooga or to Miami or, or big cities around the southeast. It was just strictly Atlanta story. And so, and then the Thevis name, just because it's a, it was a unique name anyhow. If it was Smith, it may not have been a big a deal. But it affected me, I, I think, a lot as a child, frankly, looking back on it. We had a governess and housekeeper and all that stuff, but the money was going out the door faster and it was coming in to pay for the legal fees and IRS liens. And the house was for sale for many years. It didn't sell. Um, and uh, maintaining a place like that, even though it was paid for, property taxes and huge maintenance costs on 18 manicured acres and she just flat out couldn't afford it so we needed to get rid of it. The, all this wealth and money, it all disappeared after the racketeering trial in 79. The government took it. To say that we were all taken care of and that the family had this is just inaccurate, 100%. So the government got their claws on it, the IRS, and one of the things I had a huge problem with, with my father was was the stress that he caused my mother. Boys love their mothers and they're very protective of them. 
So in a, whatever footprint he left, they wanted it, period. So after the trial, they conducted auctions and sold everything. GRC, all the Marietta Street, all the properties, it was over with. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. From the time Tony was eight years old, he only knew his dad as a man that lived behind bars. So many years later, he still has strong thoughts about his father. Had he just done an honest business with the pornography business and paid his taxes and not take the skim, not take out competitors and not commit arsons and things of that nature, the tide would have turned into his favor. You know, the whole idea that the government can tell you what to do in the privacy of your bedroom or your home. Well, that's all gone. Tony and his family took countless trips to visit their father in prisons all over the country. It was arduous process, but it was something I was basically required to do. He used to say to me, and it's one of the things I resented of him later in life. He's like, I need you all to come here every week because I need to get out of the cell. I'm not asking you all to do my time for me, but you need to do your part to help me get out of here. Son. So it would get old quick. But that's how we grew up, and it just became a job, frankly. But I can basically sum up my dad's life with a movie, the movie Heat with De Niro and Pacino. When De Niro is leaving, and he's got the girl and the cash in the car, and they're going down the highway, and he's, they're leaving, and he just has to make that right turn and get off the exit to go back and get the guy and go in the hotel and kill him. That's what happened to Thevis. He was, he was gone. He had the girlfriend to cash. And he was leaving. And he just he had to go back and finish up the vendetta he had against Underhill. Had he not done that, I don't think the government would have found him for many, many years. I mean, he had money all over the place. Hong Kong, Greece, the Bahamas, you know, several deposit accounts around the country, safe deposit boxes. But he had to, he had to get off. And that sums up his life, in my opinion. Jeanette Evans had followed Mike Thevis during his escape in 1978. He was never able to forgive himself for getting her tangled up with the chain of events that also resulted in her going to prison. He was devastated by what happened to Jeanette. Totally devastated. He never once got over it. Uh, he felt completely and totally responsible for it. The murders of Underhill and Galanti had happened just miles from the Thevis's house, something that Tony couldn't get over. That was my biggest problem with my father, was learning about that as I got lower where it all actually took place. I mean, the gun was found in the metal box, and that was all melted down. It was at, in Sandy Springs off of Riverside Drive. I mean, I never understood why you can't go do this two towns over, but <laughs> clearly he couldn't for whatever reason. 
And, you know, I don't think that he was thinking of his family or of his children at that time. I mean, they were killed on Riverside Drive in Sandy Springs in my goddamn school district. I mean, I was uh, devastated as a child to hear that because, you know, I had to go to school and hear the teachers and the administrators and other children and their parents talking about it. And I mean, Jesus Christ, you can't really blame them when you have a double murder homicide and, and, and the children were going to that school district. I was very, very much resented him for that. If that was going to take place, if that was the plan, if that was the revenge plan, it did not need to happen in our damn neighborhood. Oh, I wish you would go away. I wish I had never gotten a call from you or anyone else, but it's not. The Internet's made it exponentially worse. It started getting really bad in 2000 when the Internet boomed. I don't know where all this information comes from or how it gets on there, but it does, and it's out there. Why am I doing it? Why? Why? Because there's not a lot of positive stuff that I can spin from this. There really isn't. He was a, a family man that loved and adored his family. He made some tremendous mistakes in his life, and he regretted them to the day he died. He had forces of nature up against him, but he was a huge, huge believer that the government could not tell a, a grown-ass adult whether they could look at pornography or not what you did in your bedroom. And it's ludicrous today that anyone would be convicted of that. But he did it in the Bible Belt in the 1960s and 70s, and it was, it was illegal. What is the difference between a pornography king in 1970s versus a pornographer today on the Internet? You don't call these people today pornography kingpins, right? And they're doing far more than he did. He wasn't going to spend the rest of his life in jail for pornography. He went to prison for the rest of his life for murders and arson. I asked Tony if our time talking about his father's life had been good or bad for him. I don't feel either way. I mean, it's out there, and uh, I, don't, I don't feel worse at all. Um, I think I kind of feel relieved in the fact that I was given the opportunity to give my side of the story. Our family, and then there's Mike Thevis. They, they, they did not combine except when he came home from work. Our memories of our father, for the three youngest, is visiting him in the penitentiary. It was not prior to that. Now, my older siblings would have a different version of that, but we were just flat out too young. Probably in, in 2000, when the Internet, or before that, 98, became the dominant thing in all of our lives, at that point, I had to start asking some questions, some tough, real questions. He always blamed Paul King and the government and the uh, Nixon hit list and the Supreme Court changing from a liberal court to a conservative court. And he also blamed for himself for building that mansion on the hill that made him stick out like a sore thumb. And he was braggadocious and he wanted to have the biggest house in Atlanta at the time. It was part of his downfall. Had he just stayed in a little close-knit community with a smaller home, probably would have gotten a lot away with a lot more. I asked Tony if he believed his father was on the property that day and if he was the one that killed Underhill. Absolutely, I do. 100%. Which was my biggest problem with him and wanting me to end my relationship with him towards the end was I never, to this day, have gotten over him pulling that shit in our neighborhood, in our school district. And Jap Hanna. 
I never knew Mr. Hanna, and I do believe my father killed him. Why? Only because I've read every single sentence of the depositions and the discovery and the court cases, and I've heard the recordings, and he was at the same place that Hannah was. He talked to his wife that morning, and he had pieced it together, and I've been into the Baker Street address and the Simpson Street address where all that happened, and it, it sounds consistent with what I knew. And Jimmy Mays. I know what my father told me about him, which was not much. He was a low-level employee at best who started in the back at Cinematics building cases, or what do you call them, cabinets for the peeps. The fact that anyone thinks that the president of a huge corporation is going to go kill a guy who he doesn't even know his name may pass in the hallway is ludicrous to me. A jury thought otherwise and convicted him of it, but I don't believe that he was guilty of that Jimmy Mays at all. My dad was, he was one of the smartest people I ever know. He was also one of the dumbest people I've ever met in my life with regard to some of the things he did. But my father was a very intimidating type of personality when you go visit him. And when you get there, you just, you, you're counting out the hours to leave, not because you don't love or like the man, but you just sit there, you'd struggle to talk. Try sitting across the table from, from your wife for three hours and have a conversation. <laughs> I promise you it's not going to turn out great. But I, I wanted to know the truth, and I'm not going to deny the fact that it didn't highly affect me personally throughout my life and emotionally, that the traumatization that went through me and my family with what happened in our neighborhood. Because we didn't have anything to do with it, but we were the ones affected by it. I think maybe talking to you has probably relieved a lot of my stress and anger about that which happened. But when I cut off my relationship with my father, I, I cut it off. I did not attend his service in Atlanta. And I'm just very happy that this is all over with, obviously. All I can do is participate in him and put our spin on it, our accurate statements on what happened and what didn't happen. Actually, after the research that you've done, which is far more research than even I've done, my attitude towards him and my opinion of him is, is, is lower. It's not higher. And I haven't forgiven him for anything. I'm very upset with the research that I've read and from what I've heard from you of the way he treated my mother and what the stress that she went through. I now know so much more based on your research, why she was the way she was in the late 70s and 80s. So she was in a tremendous amount of stress and she was lucky she didn't lose everything. Joanne Thevis died in December 2016. To see the bowels of these places and to watch what happened to his life, it was shocking and I wanted to know more. And as I grew older and became an adult, I wanted to know more. I wanted to get some answers to some questions. As I got into my later years, I went alone to ask questions. But I wasn't gonna stop until I got some answers and I just didn't like the answers I was getting, I guess. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.
I sat down with him in Stillwater, Minnesota. I was with a good close friend of ours named Guido um, Morasco. And I know the word Guido sounds like another hood, but he wasn't. He was a fantastic, close, dear friend of, of our families. He was in his late 70s. And we went up there together on Saturday and Sunday. And Saturday, we visited my father. And Sunday, I asked Guido to stay, stay back on Sunday because I was going to go have my conversation alone. I was not in a happy mood. I, I didn't want to be there. And I just asked my dad for two or three hours. The questions I asked him was, did you kill, did you murder Galante and Underhill on Riverside Drive? And he said, no, son, I didn't. I said, well, what about Hannah? And then what about Mays? And if I don't get the answers that I think that they are, you and I are going to have a problem going forward. And it got a little heated, and he knew I was angry, and he flat out said to me, I'll never forget, he said, I know you want to punch me, son. And I said, no, I want to knock you out. I want to knock you out right now. And he said, son, if that's what you need to do, then do it. These guards won't touch you in here. And I said, no, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to see you anymore. And that's the decision I made because I never got an apology from him. I don't think any of my siblings did. I could be wrong about that, but I didn't. Not that I feel like that would have done any different, made any difference, but I do feel that he owed some explanations. And at that point, I just had had enough of, I felt like every time I saw him, he was lying to me. And clearly he was, but I guess he just didn't want his children to know the truth. And at that point in time, he was getting approached as much as I was about doing movies and documentaries. And this is back in 2000s. He knew it was going to come out. So I wanted to hear from him straight up. There's no reason you're doing life plus 20 plus another 20 plus all these other charges. You're never getting out of here. What difference does it make except that I need it for myself? I need you to kind of let me go with this. And he just didn't do it. So cut off my relationship with him. He was a man that was bigger than life, whom I revered. I thought he was a genius. And as the years went on and I learned more, I thought he made some of the biggest, dumbest mistakes I've ever seen anyone make in my life. And I wish he had come through with some obvious conclusions that he did what he did and admitted to me what he did. give me some closure. I wanted some closure and it didn't turn out that way. So um, I essentially... I. I didn't even see him for the last seven or eight years of his life. I, I decided I didn't need to do this anymore. He started getting down probably in the late 80s, realizing he wasn't going to ever get out. He, When he died, I didn't show up at his service. I just didn't have any interest in it. I mean, I'm comfortable with that decision today, and I know I made the right one, and I'm just not going to fake it. That towards the end of his life, he tried to do good. He was a true born-again Christian, and... He did write novels in the penitentiary, and he made it his life's mission in the end to help other prisoners not ruin their lives like he did. And he was very serious about working with cancer patients up until the end. Um, he would go sit in the hospital and hold cancer patients' hands and read to them and pray with them and things like that. And he was very uplifting to these people who could not. He would read to them and teach them to not fear death, but to look forward to it. He died in a hospital room in Stillwater, Minnesota, in the penitentiary. His body just gave out his heart, but 
I think it's just old age and loneliness, and he was 100% ready to go. But I think, no question, he died with many, many regrets. The biggest thing I remember about the house, and I remember very vividly, was the land that was around it and the things that you could do. You had 18 acres and with a, a pond and go-kart tracks and tennis court and swimming pools and stables with five horses and tremendous amount of stuff to do as a child there. In July of 08, a developer was going to buy it and tear it down and build five $1.5 million homes up there. I found out about it on a Saturday just by looking through some real estate listings that was coming up for a foreclosure and I called my folks and we went up there on Sunday and I was able to buy it right there on the courthouse steps and get it back and we still own it today, thank God. Well, it was one of my missions in life and a dream come true. But I was only able to accomplish it because of my folks. I was happy in the end that I was able to save this home and renovate it and keep it this beautiful state that it is today in Atlanta. And we're good neighbors to the neighbors and there are no issues. But I'm glad that this home was never taken down and that would have been the, the final nail in the coffin and I made damn sure that didn't happen. Where I was itching at the bit to get back up there and fix that place. It's one thing I wanted to turn around and make positive was to make that home a beautiful, respectful home in the city of Atlanta and is one of the nicest homes in this town. I've spent over 10 months researching and reporting on this story. I've read every bit of 13,000 pages on the man, spanning two decades. Secret FBI files and police reports, witness interviews, video archives, and a huge stack of newspaper coverage. I found the collection of the music that Phoebus had produced while running GRC, artists from the 1970s, long since forgotten. Many of the best songs created down at Sound Pit Studios are used in this podcast. Despite being front page news for so many years, Atlanta, the city too busy to hate, had never really wanted a character like Mike Phoebus associated with the city. In 2019, Atlanta is a bustling metropolis full of shiny buildings, trendy restaurants, and mega sporting events held year-round. I shouldn't have been surprised, but when I first started telling people in Atlanta about this podcast, I got plenty of uncomfortable looks. A combination of disbelief that Mike Thevis had even existed in this city, and that it didn't fit the narrative of a city in the midst of today's booming economy. Like New York City's Times Square, Things were different now. Thevis's old warehouse and recording studio downtown is now the home of Centennial Olympic Park and family-friendly attractions like the Georgia Aquarium and the World of Coca-Cola. I called many people that didn't want to talk or that didn't want it known that they were talking to me. They whispered even more scandalous stories to me, as if they hadn't been able to tell anyone in forever. Of politicians seen up at the big house. Of cash stashed away across the globe and of the girlfriends. It felt like the ghost of Mike Phoebus was still hanging around after all these years. I drove back up to Buckhead, but this time I knew so much more and stopped by many of the spots that had played a huge role in the story of Mike Phoebus. I passed Pearl's old house off Riverside Drive, 
and the land now popping with homes where Roger Underhill and Isaac Galanti were gunned down on that fall day in October 1978. Just down the road was the bend where Mike Thebus crashed his motorcycle in 1973, and Jeanette's house was a short hop once you drive over the Johnson Ferry Road bridge running above the Chattahoochee River. Tony was right; it really was all so nearby. A few days before the recording of this episode, I spoke with Tony again. I met him at the entrance to Lionsgate. I was finally going to see the house inside the gates for the first time. Tony had ribbed me a few times about calling the house a compound. When I drove through the gates up to the house, my impression had changed. The house and grounds are beautiful. I touched the two large marble lions sitting near the front door. Looking down from the front, the views are stunning. And it felt peaceful, almost quiet up here. I saw the pool in the back and a waterfall. Tony had built a chicken coop near the back of the property, and he even had a few bee colonies there too. The property used to sit on 18 acres, but today it was on three. Still impressive in a big city like Atlanta. Tony showed me a collection of photos from throughout the years. Photos of the horse stable that used to sit near the back of the land, including one of that pony that DB had gifted his brother so many years ago. We looked through lots of photos of him and his family back when they had happier times together. There was one of a smiling Tony with his twin sister, and another one of his dad sitting on his motorcycle. And a black and white photo of Mike Thebus from the 1960s in Athens, Greece, with the Parthenon in the background. Tony also had photos of the parties his father had thrown at the house. I saw the huge bar, fully stocked, record company executives smiling, most with mustaches and funky patterned shirts from the 1970s. I saw a rare photo of Mike and Joanne with Roger Dean Underhill seated at a table in one of the beautiful dining rooms at the Plaza Hotel in New York, and one of Jimmy Mays up at the house. A photo of Mike and Pat sitting on the grounds of the Texarkana prison, and another photo with one of the kids of Jeanette. Maybe this was one Thebus had with him while he was behind bars. The words "prison photos" was written in pen below three photos of Jeanette, and finally the last photo of Tony with his father, taken before they stopped speaking before Mike Thebus's death. I told Tony that there was something undeniably charming and charismatic about his father that I had felt since the first time I started to dig into this story. So many years later, Thebus and his larger-than-life personality still shone through. There was nothing average about Mike Thevis. Well, I had 25 years of the good life. I try to look at it in just that manner. In other words, if this is all that the Lord wanted me to have, then I accept what I've had because I had far more than most people did. The one thing I want more than anything in my life. Even if I wound up with a life sentence for spitting on the sidewalk, is to prove my innocence to the murders, basically, so that my children don't have to live with that type of stigma.
Gangster House is created, written, and hosted by me, Jason Hoke, and is a production of Imperative Entertainment. Shane Freeman is lead engineer with additional editing and production support by myself and Jasmine Cross with audio mixing provided by Resonate Recordings. Recording sessions at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta. Claire Martin and Elizabeth Egan are story editors. Cover art and design by Trevor Eiler. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia, and WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia. Original music score by Brandon Bush. The Ballad of Tea, performed and written by Sammy Johns. Previously unreleased. The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc. Music licensed from Gin Music Group. Love the songs from Gangster House? Check out the new playlist on Spotify. Just search Gangster House. Some segments recorded using actors to recreate scenes based on this true story. For more information, exclusive photos, or tips on this story, visit GangsterHouse.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Gangster House. If you love the show, tell a friend and leave a review. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. Thanks for listening. A listener note. The following are corrections to the original recorded episodes of Gangster House. The tiny jail that Mike Thevis was housed in in April 1978 in Indiana was in New Albany, Indiana, not Newburgh. Pat McLean was married weeks after the capture of Mike Thevis in 1978, not before. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.